Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to introduce Al Hunt, Bloomberg opinion columnist and expert in all things Washington, to tell us a little bit about what we should pay attention to on this election day. Al Hunt, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. I want you to just tell us a little bit about Katie Hill. Now, this is not a name that many people may be familiar with. She is running in California's 25th, and you've written about Katie Hill and why this is an election to watch. Tell us. Well, it's, a, it's a basically a Republican-leaning district. It's represented by an incumbent named Steve Knight, who is one of the stronger incumbents running for re-election. It's a district. It's north of L.A. It's Ventura, uh, Simi Valley, home of the Reagan Library. And uh, suddenly this 31-year-old woman, uh, who is the daughter of a cop and a nurse, uh, ran a large homeless organization, didn't have a lot of connections or anything, has run this dazzling campaign and come from clearly behind to the point where she is at least an even bet. She raised in the last quarter $3.8 million. Let me repeat that, $3.8 million. Even in Bloomberg terms, that's pretty big. And she's got 2,000 volunteers uh, every last weekend at least fanning out. So it's really kind of exciting to see that kind of grassroots enthusiasm. So when you look at the race-specific details right now and from what you're hearing with respect to turnout, what are you expecting for today's results? A huge turnout to begin with, and a huge turnout under conventional standards would be an advantage for the Democrats and think it still might be, but one doesn't know whether Trump rallied people with his, what I consider, racist demagoguery on the caravan and other issues the last couple of days. So it's a little bit uncertain. I think the big turnout in suburban areas is clearly going to advantage Democrats. Uh, if there's a huge turnout in red rural areas, that may help Republicans. So on balance, I think it's going to help Democrats more. Al Hunt, are you looking to the Indiana Senate race as well? Big. First 6 o'clock, uh, polls close in Kentucky and Indiana, and there are two really, really huge races, one in the House and one in the Senate. Senate that you just mentioned, Joe Donnelly, is probably one of the three or four most endangered Democratic incumbents. This is a really bad map for Democrats this year. And if Joe Donnelly survives, uh, that means the Democrats, you know, have a shot at taking control of the Senate. It's a long shot. But it's one Republicans think they have to win. Uh, it's a very Republican state. Joe Donnelly's a, a one-term senator. Uh, he voted against Brett Kavanaugh, and they have really, I think, I think Obama's, uh, excuse me, I think that Trump has been there four times. Kentucky, Amy McGrath, <clears throat> Marine combat pilot, Amy McGrath, is running against a Republican incumbent, Andy Barr, in a district that's about plus 10 uh, GOP, and I think she's got a real chance to win. It's a very exciting race, and that'll be an indication of a, of a wave of interesting candidates winning this year, a lot of them women and a disproportionate number of them veterans, young. Do you think that Ted Cruz will no longer be part of the Senate come, I guess, well, no, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying uh, I'm not weighing in on one way or another, but better workers certainly. I know uh, uh, you're being fair. I'm not. But um, but better workers certainly run a, a competitive campaign. And it seems like there is some uncertainty there, though, though, leaning toward Ted Cruz. Right. 
He's the rock star uh, 2018, uh, uh, not not Ted Cruz, but Beto O'Rourke. Uh, it's, a, it's a really tough state. It's a really, really tough state to win statewide. If you're a Democrat, uh, it's probably moving that way, but slowly. Uh, I think the only uh, the only reason Democrats think there may be an upset is because there is a massive surge of early voting there, and the question is is do the polls and the and the modeling are they able to reflect that? Because they all show Cruz winning by about three or four. I don't know the answer to that question, but it will be exciting to watch. Polls close in Texas at eight, so yeah. stay tuned for that next well, hour. You said that Beto O'Rourke is the rock star of this election cycle. So you know, one sort of speculation is. If he wins, he'll be considered a candidate for uh, the presidency at some point, perhaps even as soon as 2020. Do you think that that's uh, feasible? And do you think it's feasible even if he doesn't win? Well, I think all the standards change when Donald Trump won. Uh, so therefore, you know, experience and gravitas and all that kind of stuff that used to count for something doesn't count much anymore. Uh, but I think that would be early. Uh, Barack Obama, they said, was early, but Barack Obama had spent, you know, what, eight years in the state legislature, four years in the Senate. Uh, I think more of a, uh, you know, more ready, say, than Beto would be in 20. But I'll tell you, there's an awful lot of, of, of really movement Democrats who uh, would put their hand in the fire for Beto or work. Al Hunt, tell us about the races in Florida. And I don't just mean the Senate race between Bill Nelson and his competitor. It's, it's 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 really you know if you if you're looking for a operation central tonight it's florida because it's the one state that has everything huge senate race which you just mentioned uh bill nelson running against an incumbent governor rick scott i mean and and the amount of money spent is just uh, has been colossal same time you have a fantastic governor's race with a trump supporting right-wing republican congressman ron DeSantis running against uh the african-american uh, mayor of tallahassee andrew gillum it has really been a it's been a very tough race i was down there a couple weeks ago and i think to the surprise of some democrats in washington at least gillum is just one heck of a candidate and i think the odds now favor him and that would be huge because it would be the first time the Democrats control the state house in eight years. It affects uh, redistricting after the 2020 census. And those two races at the top, if Democrats win those by three, four, or five points, and some think they will, that's that's going to affect the number of house seats too. Yeah. I think there were, right now the Democrats think they're going to pick up two house seats in Florida. They have a chance to pick up as many as four or five if they have any kind of a blue wave night. So we're talking a lot about a potential blue wave of Democrats picking up uh, seats, but there is the alternative here, which is right. that Republicans pick up both, uh, they, they win, they keep control over both houses, uh, both the House of Representatives as well as the Senate. And what's the likelihood of that? And what would that do for President Trump? Well, the likelihood of that, I think, is probably, you know, in the 15 you know, 16, 17% range. Uh, I think, you know, far greater than 50% they'll keep control in the Senate, but, uh, but a reach in the House. But if they do, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a free license for Donald Trump. Donald Trump can do anything he wants to. It'll be the end of, uh, of the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, he, he can really get done almost anything he wants. He dominates his party, and his party will dominate Washington. Yeah. Al Hunt, thank you so much for being with us. Al Hunt is a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion uh, talking about the midterm elections. 
there certainly has been a lot of hype around financial technology, fintech firms. A number of startups have burgeoned to the surface over a number of years. There is a question, though. How much more room is there for startups at a time when the big banks are all trying to plow into financial technology, fintech? Joining us now to talk about that is Shawark Sachivolo. He is a general partner at Trinity Ventures in San Francisco. Shawark, thank you so much for being with us. So let's just start there. I mean, do you see a lot of good potential opportunities out there with respect to fintech firms that you are interested in investing in? Absolutely. I think uh, fintechs uh, is a pretty broad category. There's a lot of different kinds of uh, opportunities up and down the financial services spectrum. Um, I do think the the uh, levels of innovation, uh, in fact, are just getting started. Uh, you had mentioned the big banks plowing in more. Uh, if anything, I think that actually creates a whole bunch of new opportunity um, because as these big banks effectively try to create new products and services. There's a whole bunch of new technology platforms and services that will be necessary in order to deliver them. There's a lot of opportunity there. And uh, part of the reason why a lot of the large financial institutions are getting more aggressive is because there's a whole bunch of new uh, upstarts that are effectively pushing the boundary and kind of forcing a lot more innovation faster. So all in all, I think uh, there's still a lot of opportunity across the spectrum for uh, fintech innovation. Now, you yourself are a serial entrepreneur in the world of fintech. Uh, You've created companies that have then been acquired by MasterCard, for example. How is it possible that on the consumer level, you're able to take an Uber or to transact business completely on your phone instantly without any friction? You can pay for things. But when it comes to the world of wholesale banking, banks moving large amounts of money, why is that still a challenge and why is it still expensive? It's an excellent question. And I think the, the simple answer is that the stakes are higher and, and the infrastructure that is necessary to be built up in order to play in those spaces is higher simply because the regulatory um, requirements that are required to play in those spaces are substantially more um, stringent. So you have... Uh, a larger number of regulations that control, you know, things like KYC and AML that all are uh, multiple three-letter words that effectively are things that need to be done to uh, make sure that the consumer and all the participating parties in a transaction are protected. And to make sure that all of those things are done is a much higher bar. And in a lot of cases, actually quite boring stuff. So when you think about financial innovation, Uh, Innovation first starts with the easier things, things that are easier to get done. But um, uh, we've uh, recently invested in a company that's actually making that a lot easier to do, Um, a company called Synapse FI that's actually creating uh, APIs to almost make access to wholesale banking almost as easy as uh, Stripe has made payment services to be integrated into an Uber or a Lyft, for example. And just to do the acronym definition, KYC means know your customer and AML, for those in the financial world, know it means anti-money laundering rules. Sorry. No, no, no worries. It's good to point that out because uh, these acronyms do have purposes uh, for, for the regulators and for the banks. But Schwark, I'm wondering, you mentioned payments, and that was an area that you have expertise in yourself. I'm looking at Square shares, for example, and they're up more than 120% so far year to date. 
state. Is the payment sector still ground zero when it comes to innovation in financial technology? What is the frontier uh, for the next wave of innovation? Absolutely. I think it's uh, definitely the early days. Uh, Square, and of course, has been uh, innovating almost in and around the payment sector. So they're actually kind of getting into things like lending and marketing and all the other kinds of services uh, from payroll and so on and so forth. So the the number of services they can offer their existing customer base um, is still, you know, they're still scratching the surface. So I think there's a lot more upside there. And But if you look at broadly more fintech, I do think the the amount of innovation is almost poised to accelerate because one of the things that almost limits innovation in financial services is, in fact, regulatory um, uh, strength, if you may. So if the the regulators are are being very, very cautious, then it almost limits innovation because people are scared to kind of push the boundary a little bit to kind of make sure, figure out what it is that actually can be done. Um, but when the regulators uh, tend to be a little bit more lax, then it tends to become a little bit more um, uh, encouraging of innovation. So lending, for example, uh, has been innovated on many, many times over the last 10 years because regulators were a little bit more friendly towards uh, innovation in the lending space. So as regulators look favorably upon innovation in different areas, uh, those actually tend to come um, alive with a lot more innovation. So I think um, lately, I think the regulators have been a little bit more encouraging of innovation. The OCC is, for example, creating things like the FinTech Charter. So they're they're starting to think about innovation as part of the realm of the things that they want to uh, encourage and, and push. And so as the regulators start to kind of look at this a little bit more favorably, I think innovation is only going to accelerate. Can you just tell us quickly about Branch? Because we talked about the developed world, and Branch is a company that you've invested in that works in emerging markets. That's exactly right. I think uh, if you really think about financial services, uh, we tend to kind of almost always, on, on fintechs especially, we tend to think about that as a very U.S. phenomenon. But uh, if you really look, look at uh, fintech innovation, it's actually happening across the world. Uh, in fact, um, because, again, regulation is a little bit more friendly to innovation in Europe, you actually find uh, de novo banks that have actually been created from scratch actually thriving in Europe, which is not quite uh, played out almost the same way in the U.S. yet. Um, but if you really think about consumers and consumer demand, um, financial services in the U.S. is almost one of the most well-developed sectors. But across the rest of the world, financial services has very, very low penetration. So very few consumers actually even have access to financial services as a fraction of the entire population. And uh, what Branch is trying to do is kind of taking the, the, the device that is, does actually does have very high penetration, which is the smartphone, um, which is rapidly increasing in its penetration rates across the developing world. And using the, the access and information that a smartphone provides in order to be able to create underwriting decisions, in order to give access to both loans and uh, going forward, even savings products to consumers um, directly off of their phone. So a branchless banking, if you may, delivered by a smartphone into the very um, deepest parts of Africa, uh, India, and um, Mexico, and a bunch of other countries as, as they go along. Thank you very much for spending time with us and talking about financial technology and the challenges and the opportunities. Shwark Satyavolo is the general partner for Trinity Ventures, joining us from San Francisco.
The energy and pharmaceutical industries stand to potentially be disrupted depending on the outcome of today's midterm elections in the United States. Joining us now, Brian Rice, Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with the pharmaceutical industry. What is the sort of range of outcomes from today's election that could potentially affect this industry? Uh, sure. And I think the the one that the pharmaceutical industry would be most concerned with is if you have the, the true blue wave where Democrats control not only the House, but also the Senate. And in that instance, uh, they would have the ability to not only hold a lot of hearings that would create a lot of noise and headlines, but then also potentially uh, send some legislation to President Trump's desk. And I think the concern for the industry is that if you listen to President Trump over the past couple of years, you know, his personal leanings from time to time uh, appear to be more aligned uh, with the Democrats on things like giving the federal government more direct influence over the prices of prescription drugs in the Part D program, for example. Now, if it's just a split where or a gridlock situation where Democrats maybe win control of the House, but Republicans retain control of the Senate, then I think those more draconian things are, are taken off the table. But again, the Democrat-controlled House would have the, uh, the ability to dictate a number more hearings and things that would put pharmaceutical companies um, in more of a spotlight than they are, are already. Brian Rye, I just want to let you know that we have a group of future voters of America joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. We have all the members of Girl Scout Troop 1956 from Edgemont in Scarsdale. So they're all listening to you because they want to understand how the midterm elections figure into not just this election cycle, but the 2020 cycle. Are these the same issues you believe are going to dominate the next election? Or is this something that is specific to this midterm? Because typically you think, oh, however the economy goes, that's how the vote goes. Well, first of all, I'm honored to be speaking in, in front of such a distinguished group. Um, uh, welcome, girls. And uh, secondly, I think the health care uh, situation is one that will continue uh, to be of particular interest to voters, uh, not only drug pricing, but then also starting tomorrow probably will cycle very quickly into the 2020 presidential campaign, in particular the intra-democratic party fight about how far left do you want to go? Are we going to nominate someone who believes in the Bernie Sanders Medicare for all? Uh, perspective, or is it maybe not quite that far uh, down that stretch? So, you know, I think 2019 is going to be a very interesting year from a health care perspective, and that obviously sets up the battle uh, versus President Trump in 2020. Depending on the outcome of these uh, midterm elections tomorrow and what policies emanate from there, that will obviously drive a lot of the conversation um, uh, in uh, heading into 2020. And certainly, you know, health care is uh, one that I think both parties uh, will be uh, forced to talk about, even if they don't want to. Brian, one thing that I'm struck by is that no matter who wins, we're going to probably deepen the U.S. deficit, right, with spending, possibly either with infrastructure spending or a more permanent tax cut. Uh, would you say that that's an accurate statement? And uh, what are the most likely spending scenarios should we see a blue wave or a red wave? Yeah, uh, I, I think and certainly history suggests that's a pretty safe bet, no matter what the uh, what the outcome of an election is. Um, certainly, if you have either a blue wave or a split Congress, um, I think infrastructure is an area where the president has expressed a lot of interest, and and Democrats um, also uh, would want to to maybe uh, provide more stimulus in that standpoint. I think the political question that the Democrats would then have to ask, though, is do they want to hand the president a win? Uh, do they want to be seen on stage? At 
at a bill signing ceremony, for example, where the president is getting something that he wants, and then for the president, would he be willing to uh, to cave in on some Democratic demands? Uh, how much would he ask for in return, whether it's the wall or other infrastructure priorities that perhaps the Democrats um, you know, aren't aligned with? But that, I think, is an area that uh, investors are going to want to focus on. But that's certainly, that's certainly not a, a deficit-cutting program that we're going to see. Brian, there are a lot of ballot initiatives that voters are going to have to decide on. Tell us the ones that you believe are the most relevant. Well, a couple uh, that, that I think our, in, our various analysts are focused on here at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, out in California. Uh, Prop 8, I think, has a lot of a lot of interest within the healthcare community, in particular dialysis providers. I know uh, Davida in particular has been very keen on uh, on that one. Uh, several ballot initiatives uh, could um, could I guess further the trend towards cannabis legalization. I think Michigan is a state in particular that um, that our analysts are focused on, uh, given the uh, uh, the potential market uh, in that state. So those are a couple, but yeah, across the country, a number of ballot initiatives. This is much more than just the battle for control of Congress. Thank you so much for being with us, Brian Rye. I'm sure you've got a long night ahead of you. Uh, we may not even know the results, right, come uh, tomorrow morning. There might be some pretty hairy races there. That's right. You know, a ballot, uh, I guess the polls close at around 11 o'clock tonight, Eastern time in, in California, and a number of those races could ultimately decide uh, which way the, uh, the, no, the Congress goes next year. Well, Brian Rye, have a wonderful time drinking coffee from now until tomorrow this time. Brian Rye, Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C. The creditors of Sears are asking the court to probe transactions that involve the bankrupt retailer's biggest shareholder, Eddie Lampert. And here to tell us about it is Noel Hebert, Director of Credit Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Noel, just set out for us exactly what kinds of transactions do they want investigated. Well, pretty much all of them. Uh, So, I mean, over the last several years... In order to keep Sears afloat, Eddie's done a number of things uh, to basically inject capital into the business, Uh, the biggest one being the 2014 transaction where they spun out a bunch of real estate into what's called Siratage, which is a real estate investment trust that took on a bunch of the stores owned by Sears. But then more recently, there's been a number of deals which were more direct lending, uh, where Eddie Lampert, through his ESL investment fund, would basically lend dollars uh, secured by new real estate or intellectual property or some of the other assets of the company. So what's at stake here? I mean, could Eddie Lampert have to pay the creditor something or would he just stand to recover less? great question. I, I wish I knew the answer. Uh, you know, I think realistically, it, it's a tactic by creditors to try and extract more from Eddie Lampert to kind of move the process along. Yeah. Um, because if it doesn't happen quickly, the problem is, as we saw with Toys R Us, is that you end up in a situation where you risk moving from a Chapter 11 into a Chapter 7. Um, Eddie doesn't want that because of his Siratage ownership stake and because Siratage still collects a lot of rent from Sears. So to be clear, um, Chapter 7 means that the whole place disbands, uh, liquidates, and is done, whereas Chapter exactly. 11 is more restructuring. Who are the creditors? I mean, these, are these mostly hedge funds? It's going to be predominantly hedge funds because you got to remember, uh, you know, ESL controlled, you know, 50% of the equity. He also controlled 50% of, you know, the, the, the lending part of the portfolio. So between him and Fairholme before they had equity, exited much of their equity stake, I mean, those... Two collectively owned, you know, three quarters of the capital structure almost. 
Noel, uh, how far back will this? Are they looking for this investigation to go? So they're they're trying to roll up everything going back until call it 2012, which is when you saw uh, Sears Hometown spun out, as well as some of the deals done with Sears Canada. Uh, those. I mean, because a lot of those deals, including Land's End as well, uh, which was 2014, a lot of those deals were just done as distribution, spun out pro rata, or everybody, all the shareholders had equal right to participate. So those look like a tough lift, I would think, from the creditor standpoint. Same with Ceritage, because I got a fairness opinion. And Eddie Lampert and ESL paid an extra $40 million a couple of years after that deal was done to settle shareholder litigation at that point. So, you know, it's a good reach for them. I think the more recent deals where, you know, they lent directly against specific assets over the last, call it, two years are, are probably more doable uh, for for the hedge funds and the people on the other side of the ledger here. Um, but, but they're going after everything. I'm just wondering, there have been some kinks, some uh, people who are looking to lend to Sears uh, mm-hmm. while they're in bankruptcy, a debtor in possessions loan, have mm-hmm. sort of uh, balked at the idea of Eddie Lampert being overly involved. Where is that? And, and sort of how much are they going to be able to actually borrow to keep themselves afloat during this whole process? Well, it sounds like at least uh, the latest iteration is that uh, the other creditors are willing to put up another $300 million, which is what Eddie and ESL were trying to do as a second leaned debtor in possession financing loan. Um, so it looks like they're willing to take on that uh, liability, which is okay from the standpoint of you still have plenty of coverage from your your working capital, so your inventory, et cetera. Um, and basically, they were trying to keep Eddie from getting more engaged because if he had gotten into the debtor possession role, then he would leapfrog right the other term loan lenders and some of the other first liens, which are still out there as creditors. So I think uh, the banks and a lot of people who've sort of bought into this process over time and kept, you know, kind of maybe seeing the the silver lining on the gray cloud that kept building uh, are maybe now feeling a little more disenchanted with the whole thing and less inclined to sort of let Eddie have a bigger say. And and just quickly, Noel, time. You mentioned time. Do Mm -hmm. they have time to let this happen while the company still operates? (laughs) No would be my, my gut answer here, right? I mean, the reality is if you don't have something in place in a real firm plan by the very early part of next year, call it mid-February, early March, it'll be very hard to keep this thing from spiraling into liquidation because the company consumes so much cash. Um, so you need to be able to wipe away all the incremental costs, whether you're talking just the cost of running right. the bankruptcy, the cost of the incremental stores, et cetera. Right. So. It's going to be an interesting, an interesting road, as it has for the number of years that this has been uh, ongoing. Noel Hebert, thank you so much for being with us. Noel Hebert, Director of Credit Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.